from The Solo Project, this is Never 9 to 5, a podcast about the soloists who are redesigning their lives around the pursuit of interesting work. What I've really learned is that talent is very little of it. You know, it really is. I mean, you look at American Idol, you look at all these shows, there are lots of talented people out there. It's really what goes on between your ears that makes the difference, I think, for people. If you're a musician aspiring to blockbuster success, this conversation with singer-songwriter Katie Tupin is a must-listen. But really, anyone seeking to push their creativity to a new level will draw inspiration here. Tupin speaks candidly about her ascent in the notoriously cutthroat music industry, and her insights can be applied to almost any solo endeavor. Lesson one, talent is only part of the equation. After graduating from high school in Lexington, Kentucky, Tupin decided to punt on college and instead enroll in a kind of self-guided school of rock. Her father, a blues musician, taught her how to play the guitar. She took voice lessons with an opera singer, and then she teamed up with her friend Matt Myers to book gigs wherever they could, local coffee shops, bars, wineries. In 2011, the duo officially founded the alt-country band Houndmouth. Which leads us to lesson two, blind conviction is a skill. Houndmouth would go on to earn critical acclaim, but from the very start, Tupin considered their ascent inevitable. Looking back, she calls her confidence unbelievably naive. But of course she was right. When Houndmouth released its first hit single, Sedona, in 2015, it rocketed to number one on the Billboard chart. Soon, Tupin found herself performing on Letterman and Conan, and the band began touring internationally. Which brings us to lesson three. When you're a soloist, you're a business person. Own it. If Tupin drew musical inspiration from her father, she acquired business acumen from her mother, who ran a thriving Mary Kay business. Tupin would lean on those organizational skills in 2016 when she parted ways with Houndmouth. It was a seemingly odd time to leave. The band was hitting stratospheric levels of success, but Tupin felt stifled and wanted to regain creative and financial control of her career. Unsurprisingly, she's done just that and more. In 2018, Tupin self-produced her first solo album, Magnetic Moves, and she began touring nationally. What makes this leap all the more impressive is that she's truly a one-woman enterprise. She manages her own schedule and promotion. She controls her own social content, produces her own music videos, and yes, she writes her own music. At its core, Tupin's story is about chasing your dreams, leaning into the gritty challenges, and listening to your own voice. The biggest lesson? Forget the critics and just create. Uh, in many ways, musicians are prototypic soloists. Have you ever held a conventional nine to five gig? No. Well, I mean, I worked at Panera Bread and I worked at a chocolate shop and I worked at a coffee shop. Okay. So that, that was a long time ago. <laughs> no, I, um, I actually, my, so my mom, my mom was very successful in Mary Kay. And so I watched her work from home all growing up. And I think that there's something to that, you know, um, somebody that's able to run their own business and, and in a very successful way and getting to witness that all growing up made a really big difference in how I approach music. Some of the research I did for this interview, well, not some of it, all of it is from the internet. So however, the internet may be inaccurate. Um, but I noticed that you, um, at one point were a horseback riding instructor. You took a mission trip, uh, to the Dominican Republic. You went deep. <laughs> it comes up. There's not a lot, but that does, those details come up. So, you know, it's, it's funny. I'm wondering from a missionary trip to rock star, what was that transition? Well, um, okay. So it, it's a long story. Um, I, I, so I did, I grew up, so I was very much a jock growing up. I was into sports. I was into riding horses. I was played volleyball. I didn't really do music at all. Uh, my dad was a blues guitar player. And so, um, it was sort of all through the house, but I was, because I think my dad was so into it. Like I wasn't into it, you know, but I could always, your dad. No, but he did, you know, he did the, um, he did a lot of like bar bands and things like that before my brother and I were born. And so, but he was always just playing guitar and he's also a, a cross harp harmonica player and he's really, really good. And so, um, but yeah, so I think I sort of had an aversion to it just because my dad was so into it, you know, 
but he always would have me sing in the car and uh, let me sing. Cause I always sing along to the radio, you know, but he would never let me sing quietly. He always said, you have to sing loud. If you're going to sing, you have to sing loudly. Um, you know, you can't just whisper the song. So I think that sort of got me, uh, got my voice kind of strong. And then I, I took, all right, I'm, I'm fast forwarding. So then I went on a mission trip. <laughs> Um, I, I shattered my elbow snowboarding, uh, when I was 17 and I was going to go to college, but I didn't really want to go to college. I, I always hated school. Like I hated, you know, the institution, the surprise, surprise of, of school of having to sit there for seven hours or whatever it was to learn something. I love to learn, but I'll just read the freaking book, you know? So I, I shattered my arm. I was going to go to the university of Colorado. And in between that, I went on a mission trip. My brother had gone on mission trips and I was really curious about it. And my brother's a, a doctor. And so he, that really inspired him to become a doctor to help people in, in third world countries. And so I went along and one night there had nothing to do with the mission trip, but I was playing guitar. I could play guitar a little bit like C, G and D, you know, and I could sing a little bit, you know, and I, I was saying a song on the beach and all these people like gathered around on the beach. And I was like, I think there's something to this. This is cool, you know? And so that was kind of, kind of where I started. Um, I got the idea to, to play music. And so I came home and I said to my dad, I want you to teach me music theory instead of going to college. And he said, okay. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. <laughs> so supportive. But what exactly is a mission trip? So mission trip, really the intention of mission trips, you hear about churches going on mission trips, are to just take groups of people to these third world countries to see their living conditions, to see what's going on there so that they come back and tell more people. I mean, that's the point of taking groups down for a week. Now there's missionaries and people that actually live there that are helping the communities and they're in the communities doing the actual work, building the schools, building, you know, feeding the children that live in the landfill. You know, they're people that are actually living there doing that. But the small groups that go down are just to get a taste of it because until you see something like that with your own eyes, I mean, we don't have that here. Maybe in the hills of Appalachia, we have some stuff that kind of compares to that here, but not really. I mean, when you go and see something like that with your own eyes, it really, it really changes your perspective and you can come back and, you know, do more, do more than, um, you know, they would do basketball camps down there for the kids in the community. And so basketball players would come down for a week and help coach all these kids, so cool. you know, just different things in the community. So you go down and you get a taste of their life. Um, that's, that's what those mission trips were really all about. That's so cool. So you're on the beach, you're, you're, you're playing your three chords. Was that your, your first performative experience so. <laughs> where you have a, you have an audience? I think it might've been, I think it might've been slightly. Uh, yeah. So I came home and, um, I started learning a little bit more and I, I started hustling from there. And your dad taught you. My dad taught me. And then my, you know, my dad taught me the music and my mom taught me to hustle. My dad, uh, you know, we would sit around all day and, and I would, I really took it like it was my job. Um, and I took it really seriously. I was 18 and I knew that I was getting out of going to college, which was something my parents probably wanted me to do. Um, so I, so I really took it seriously. And, um, and I put my head down and I did the work. So he was teaching me theory. I was taking vocal lessons from an opera singer. Um, and then on the weekends, I was um, hustling, finding places to play out, coffee shops and bars and wineries and things like that. Your dad must have at that point recognized innate talent, though, to make that kind of commitment and to let you forego college and let you invest your time that way. Yeah, I think I think um, my whole life when I sang, there's a timbre or something in my voice where people would always kind of perk up if I sang just like to the radio or whatever. But I, I really had no control over that and no discipline when it came to that. It was just sort of a little bit of a natural talent. But, um, you know, what I've really learned is that talent is very little of it. <laughs> It, you know, it really is. I mean, you look at American Idol, you look at all these shows, there are lots of talented people out there. Um, 
it's it's really what goes on between your ears uh, that that makes the difference, I think, for people. So you're 22, and again, is the, if the timeline's wrong, please feel free to correct yeah. me here. But you're 22, and you co-found um, Houndmouth. How does this collaboration come together? Three years prior to Houndmouth, me and Matt uh, from from Houndmouth, we played together. Um, we dated, you know, when we were 17, 18, 19, and um, so we played together at the coffee shops, at wineries, at all kinds. Of, I don't think I've ever publicly said that we dated, but I don't give a shit anymore. Um, <laughs> uh, it was a long time ago. So, uh, you know, we played together at all these places and um, we were, we started writing and I would, we would write songs and we developed a little bit of a following locally, but it never really took off until we put bass and drums with it. And that was basically the only thing that changed um, from Katie and Matt to Houndmouth. Um, so there, a lot of the songs were even the same, like coming round again and penitentiary and those earlier sort of songs, those were songs before Houndmouth. And then, yeah, I mean, so, you know, we, we learned how to write songs together. And so there was a good chunk of time, you know, three years prior to Houndmouth forming that Houndmouth had started. So how much both go looking for the, uh, a drummer and a bassist, or you decide you want this band to be bigger than it is or. No. So I, I had kind of given myself a five-year window of like, I'll try this. And if it doesn't work out and it was getting too close to the end of that sort of window. Um, and then we temporarily split up and then he was good friends with Zach and Shane. And so he asked them to start jamming with him. And then he came to me and said, I think I found the thing. And so I went to a rehearsal and sure enough, it was the thing. It was the thing that we had been looking for. And it clicks. Pretty immediately to us and to me, um, it really, it really felt like, it really felt like this was, this was something. And that's something that I think is really important was our unbelievably naive and confident belief in it. We just all believed in it. And I believed in it so deeply that there was no semblance of a chance that it could fail. And we really felt that way. And, and for anybody to even challenge that belief in it would have just been laughable to us. So I think that is a, a huge part of the success of something is just that almost ridiculous belief in it. You know, it, I, I think there was something really to that. So it's 2011. And what is your idea as a band of success at this point? You believe in yourself, but what is that belief make you think you can do or what do you want to do as a band? You know, I didn't have enormous aspirations uh, in this. And so, you know, to me, making it was like a band that goes on tour or a band that, you know, goes on tour and people show up to some of the shows, you know, like that was enough to me. Um, It wasn't huge. You know, my favorite bands were underground kind of bands like the Felice Brothers. Like that was like my favorite band and they're not you know, packing stadiums. So my, my idea of making it was, was not huge. So I, I think we far exceeded what the goal was. Was there a turning point with the band where you start to see success accumulating and things start to change? There's momentum building. Yeah. So the, the first album that was called from the Hills below the city, we toured on that album. We went to Europe a couple of times and it was a grind, you know, like we're, I'm sharing a hotel room with six dudes. Like it wasn't <laughs> fun. Okay. It was not fun. And so then the second album, I mean, this, this was a few years of that. And, and this is touring nine months out of the year. This is like no joke and play an opening for somebody. And when a you national open, tour. Mm -hmm. And so when you open for somebody, you make about, if you're lucky, 250 bucks a night. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, It's, it's ridiculous. It's not a good business decision. Um, so, (laughs) (laughs) but we did it anyways. Um, and you have to be willing to do that. I mean, music is one of those businesses that you just have to be so passionate and you have to be so willing to do stuff that doesn't necessarily make logical sense. You have to be able to make those decisions and say, I'm just so passionate about this. I have to take the next step, even if it doesn't make rational sense. Well, the, turning point was really the second album we had had some momentum but you know we'd open for a few cool people or we toured and we sort of had established ourselves in a very underground way but nothing really big happened on that first album it was the second album where we had Sedona and Sedona was 
you know, at this time we had put together a team and we had a lot of people behind us. We had a record label, a booking agent and a manager. And at the management company, they had a radio division. And so the radio division really decided to work Sedona and Sedona was a number one song on AAA radio. And that was really the difference. And that song to this day streams unbelievably. Like it, I think it has like well over 150 million streams. It's gone platinum. And so that was the, that was the turning point for the band. And then when that album came out, I remember being in at the Bowery in New York. And then the whole crowd started singing gasoline with song of that I sang along with me. And it was so amazing and so distracting. And it was like this room full of people all of a sudden knew this song. And it, there hadn't really been a moment like that yet. And, um, and so it was that second album, right when after that second album came out, things really started to pick up. We'll be right back. I'm so interested by this, con- the, the streaming concept. You hear about this where, you know, the, there's no sort of, financial implications for the musicians themselves until it is in the millions. Do you, do you get royalties from that stream, from that song, from that album? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty open, an open book about that stuff. We didn't get paid on anything until I remember my first paycheck on the royalties were about six or eight months after I had left the band. So wow. I had never gotten paid on the music until that point. Um, the only money that I ever made was through playing shows. And a lot of that is because there was a lot of money to recoup. Um, The label put a lot of money into promoting that song. And when I say a lot, I mean, probably 150 to $200,000 went into that song or to that album to promote it before we ever got paid. So they had to make that money back. And so that's, you know, I mean, I think that that's really important for people to hear. Like, even though that's a pretty good song, like, a lot of money and a lot of work had to go into making it a number one song and making it do what it did. You know, it wasn't, you can't just throw a song out on the internet and it become a number one song. So I think that that's, while that's maybe not super encouraging for people to hear, it's also the reality that like people need to stop beating themselves up about the quality of the thing that they're making if that's what they're judging it on because a ton of money goes into it. And we, we literally played it every single, I feel like, triple a radio station and did favors and free shows and we did so much to promote that song you're working your butt off unbelievable i mean i think there was a period of time where i got on like 20 flights in a week i mean it was ridiculous it was insane now what part of this experience is it the is it the performing part is it the recording part what what's kind of lighting you up about this process of being you know a professional musician Um, I don't know if you consider yourself a rock star, but you know, you're doing it. Oh, thanks. I need to hear that. Um, well, um, uh, you're talking about presently Uh, at that moment. And so, because it's, you know, you're very young at that point, right? So you're 22, you're in your early twenties at this time. About 24 when that started happening. So it's got to be new for you, that level of exposure. Suddenly you're at the Bowery, you know, um, are you, do you enjoy being on the stage? Um, is that a, a part of it that is exciting for you? I know a lot of musicians actually don't like that part, but that's a big part of the business. Yeah. I mean, I love that. Like I love performing. I do love performing. Um, I, I mean, I love all the parts of it really. And I'm thankful that there's all these different parts of it because I probably would get bored otherwise. But back then, um, it was sort of just these doors kept opening and it would have been insane to not keep walking through them. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it was like, I remember like being at Letterman and being at Conan a couple of times. And, and in those moments, like I had just played like 18 shows and then gotten off a flight and then walked in and I did this show and then I left and then I went to another show for left Letterman and went straight to another show. And so it was so much and there was so much stimulus happening like all the time that it just didn't feel like a big deal. You know, I mean, it was a big deal, but it just did. It just was natural in that environment and in that moment, if that makes sense. It wasn't like all of a sudden I was playing at a coffee shop and then I landed on late night TV. You know, it, yep. there was a process involved. I've heard that the, that grind of 
the touring and the schedule can come at a cost. You know, I've heard, you know, someone was talking about Beyonce and how many albums are we not getting from Beyonce because she is on this crazy tour and this crazy schedule that demands all this live performance and comes at the expense of the production of the action, the creativity of the music. Oh, yeah, I would say that a lot, I, the, the artists that are like, yeah, I write all my songs on tour. Like, you're insane. I don't know how you're doing that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really don't. Like, when I'm on tour, it, it, I can't think about anything. Like, you're tired. You just have to play the next show. And you have to, you know, you have to be a personality. And you have there's so much being demanded of you. I can't imagine being creative. So that was a big bummer um, for me, especially in the band, because I only, you know, I only got to sing four songs in five years. I mean, that was not fun. I mean, I sang on every song, but like, I only got, you know what I mean? So that was really stifling creatively. Um, and actually I think one of my biggest gifts is, uh, in writing. Like I always was a writer. I actually found some, my mom had this out the other day. She had some homework out from when I was nine and it was a paper I had written about a vacation that we took. And the, the teacher's notes were, you're such a naturally gifted writer. And I would always get that note, like all growing up that I was a naturally gifted writer. And, um, so I didn't get to do a whole lot of that, you know, like when you're touring constantly, because all of that kind of goes on hold to play the same songs every night. Yeah. The best writing people don't realize is very lyrical. It's almost musical. There's a tone and a rhythm to it. It's very different than when you speak. So that makes sense that you would have those two talents. You know, I'm curious. So 2011, this is all going on. You don't have the same internet tools then, do you? Am I getting that right? No, 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 no. This was when we started, Spotify had just started. So it wasn't like on our radar that we needed Spotify streams. It, it didn't even, we didn't even think about it. You, you know, like CD Baby or like, you know, yeah. uploading yeah. to iTunes or. Triple A radio was kind of like the standard of like what we were doing. And like the Lumineers had crushed Triple A radio and then been able to break through to pop radio. And so we were kind of hoping to go in that direction and we got to number one and then it just didn't really translate to alternative radio or pop radio so like that was the standard back then but now it's all this streaming stuff and I um I don't know I don't know what what you can't keep up anymore (laughs) impossible I feel like like I'm getting old but I just can't keep up anymore (laughs) well you're crushing it on social media I mean that's one of my later questions but you know, you, you use those platforms so well. Do you have a whole team? I mean, it's so energy intensive. Do you build that into your day or, you know, do you say, okay, these, these next two hours are for my social promotion or my, you know, creative outlets here? How do you manage that? Mm. Okay. So, you know, when I left the band, I, I don't have, I don't have a manager, like a real manager. Like I have a few people that help me with a few things. Um, some of my scheduling for podcasts or some of my um, contracts that come up. Like I have some people that help me with that, but like, I don't have like a real manager, like, like I did when I was with Houndmouth. And that is simply like, I'm not opposed to having a real manager. I've had some really, really bad managers since I left Houndmouth. And I realized that I know more than they know. And then the only managers that, so I'm in this weird position, right? So I've, I've had all this, this career. And so the manager that I need is somebody that's like way up here, but I don't have the numbers that everybody needs. So I know more than the managers that actually want me right now, if that makes sense. Yes. So, so it's like, so I just said, screw it. I'll just do it all myself. And, and like I was telling you earlier, like I really can't, I am one of those people that can use both sides of my brain and do creative stuff and do organizational business stuff if I have to. So as far as posting, um, I've gotten into a schedule as sort of a rhythm with it. There are certain things that I do every week, you know, like I start the Sunday giveaway or I do this or I do that. And it just keeps people engaged and I have fun with it too, you know? Um, but I did finally buy myself a big whiteboard because I'm a, t- I'm a list person. I love lists. I'm a list. I love oh, lists. Give me all the lists. But then my lists were getting so intense because I have a list for you know, Patreon and I have a list for Facebook and I have a list for all these different things. So it really is a full-time job to manage one's self. And so I finally got a big whiteboard with a calendar on it and it saved my life. (laughs) 
it's so been good. A, a total game changer. Is it like a wall size whiteboard or um, it, it, you know, it's about, it's about, about three feet and it's a calendar. And so I can see what's coming up and I see what ne- I need to promote and I can see, and then I have somebody that makes graphics and stuff for me if I need like a flyer or whatever. Um, and then it has a master to-do list on it. And that has a brain dump because if it's up here, I get stressed and I get anxious and I don't do well, but if I can write it down and let it out of my brain and it's on a piece of paper, then I feel so much better. Like I'm constantly all day long, even if it's, I need to pick up my boyfriend's pants from the dry cleaner. Like I put that on the list, like everything goes on the master list. And then I have a six most important things to do list every day. And so those are the six things that have to get done that day. And for me, you know, I really look at my creativity and my art as a business too. And so those have to be money-making activities, you know, they have to be, and then they have to be, um, and then if I'm in a creative mode, if I'm going to record something, that's a totally different thing. So this is, this is my manager side of me, but then the creative side of me is also really disciplined. I read a book when I was 17 called Coaching the Artist Within. Have you heard of this book? No. Um, by Eric Maisel. And it really changed how I view being an artist. Um, I tell a story a lot um, that I have an aunt and she is a very, very talented painter. And she has her master's in art and she taught art, um, but she hasn't painted anything in 30 years because she hasn't been inspired. And I think when it's, it's, that's a true story. And the, so many people are waiting around to be inspired. And there's so much of being an artist, of being a successful artist that produces a lot of work. There's a lot of discipline involved in that. And for me, that's writing from the time I get up till about noon or one o'clock. And so when I'm in a, in a phase of creating, like that's what I'm going to do. Everything else gets pushed to later in the day. And my creative energy goes into from the time I wake up till about noon or one. That's great. Uh, first of all, I am a huge list person and I feel the same about writing things down. I'm going to ask you for that, a link to that um, calendar. Um, oh, you know, I got I, it at Office Depot, Office Depot. I, I love it. <laughs> I have so many calendars that I get calendar um, confusion. They don't, they're, not, they're not syncing. So that's a little bit of a challenge. But, you know, I, I think the discipline of doing the creative work, a lot of people say that, you know, it's being willing to accept that it's not going to be perfect, that it's an iterative process. And to do it every day means, you know, you might not like it every day, but you have to keep doing it until you hit a rhythm. You know, my process would never be wake up and the rhythm is there. It takes a little time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that note about this is important. I'm not sure if the book highlights this, but I feel like this, like I know that that's my most creative time. A lot of people's are at night um, or, you know, my mom's is about two or three o'clock is when her brain finally turns on for the day. So, you know, everybody is different, but knowing yourself and when that starts is that's when you sort of build your creative window around. And for me, the reason it's when I wake up is because when I wake up, I can't judge what I'm doing. Like if I cannot judge what I do and let just whatever's going to happen come through me, the more I'm out of my way, the the more interesting whatever I make normally is. And you're totally right about that. Like some days it's good, some days it's bad. You just have to keep making stuff. And I think there's a process of peeling back the lay like every day you're sort of if you're not landing on it you're peeling back a layer and you're peeling back a layer and the next day you might finally just like strike gold yes yes and you have to be willing to stick with it to get to that process we'll be right back I do want to back up, though, a little bit to 2016. That's when you leave Houndmouth. You leave at a point when the band is still quite successful. Is that accurate? Yes. So what inspires that move? Well, I don't really talk about it, and I can't really talk about it, but um, but there was no other way at that current moment. It was just that I was leaving, and I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a plan. I just knew I couldn't be there anymore. Um, so... Yeah, that, I mean, that's that's all I really have to say about that. It was just, there was no other choice for me. And in this time, you've worked sobriety into your world, and that takes energetically, must have taken quite a bit of energy to do that. Is that something you're still, you know, are, are you still sober? Are oh, yeah. You still- 
So I left and I would always, you know, I was always one of those people because there was so much partying on the road. There was so yeah. much of normalizing all of that, no matter what day of the week it was, you know, and a lot of that too is because you're just so exhausted. You just, and you have to be on every day. And so, um, you get into this pattern that's super unhealthy, but, um, for me, I would take breaks, you know, I was one of those person like, I'm going to take a month off or whatever. And I, I am pretty convinced that if you need to take a month off, like you, you know, you might have a problem, but, um, <laughs> like in general, but, um, so I would do that a lot. And so like, so then when I left, I was still living like that. You know, I was still living in this pattern of partying all the time. And, and I just had this very serious realization that my dreams were not going to come true unless that part of my life went away. And I was not going to be given opportunity. I was not going to be sent all of the things that I feel I'm currently worthy of unless that part of my life went away. And that's so true. Like, so I wouldn't have been able to uh, do any of this stuff that I do. Like, you know, I, we're talking about how much I work every day and how, how disciplined about it I, I am. And when I say disciplined, like it's not some arduous thing. This is just like how I am. Like, I love it. Like I enjoy being this way, but being sober, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't get the things I get. Like people, people respect me differently now. People, uh, know they can depend on me and not that I was like horrible or, horribly unreliable or a bad person, or I'm just a much better version of myself now. Yeah. Well, I can imagine you have some energy back to concentrate because it's, that would take up a lot of energy. It took up a lot of time. It took up a lot of time. Do you do things differently if you're performing live? Was there some compensation? Were you worried that it would be difficult to be in that lifestyle? No, I had performed sober a lot because there would be, like I said, like I'd take a month off. So I had done that before. And even back then I realized that, you know, I'm a person that sort of naturally has a little bit of stage fright. Like I, I'll talk about this all the time. I used to be terrified of speaking in front of people, but you know, even the boys in the band, I think that they all had stage fright and that was a big part of their they're drinking, but you know, people do that, you know, you're right. It, it helps. But if you stop your confidence, like skyrockets, like, it's not just like, Oh, like, like it'll be months and months of work to be confident on stage. Like, no, it's like two or three shows that might feel a little iffy. And then your confidence, which is normally here on, on booze, like goes like to the moon. So I actually am, I feel like I'm a much more confident performer. I'm a much I'm a better performer, you know, and I'm a, definitely a better singer, uh, <laughs> you know. Do you consider yourself an independent musician? And, yes. You know, okay. So what does that actually entail to be an independent musician? I know you're doing a lot of your own promotion. You're doing that all on your own, but are you're still, I assume, collaborating with others and to produce the album and. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So an indie, an indie artist uh, by definition is somebody who's on an independent label. Um, so there was the major labels, you know, like Warner and, you know, Capital and all these big labels. And then there are all these little labels that popped up. And so originally it was that was an indie artist if you're on an indie label. Right. Um, but now it's kind of extended to uh, because anybody can put music out. And so anybody that's putting out their own music is sort of considered an independent artist and you can be a truly independent artist now without even, without even a label, because a lot of these labels are just outsourcing promotion and, and radio and things anyways. So you can truly be an independent now. And what is that? What does success look like to you now? Hmm, that's a really good question. <laughs> uh, um, well, so, you know, I, I just kind of make up my own rules now. And I really feel like that suits me and that's who I am. And I'm not in any way opposed to help or opposed to a label or opposed to having whatever. Um, but currently like that, I feel successful. Um, you know, I, um, have a fan base. I can show up somewhere and people will come and sing along. It's not huge. It's not like a, a tiny fraction of what it used to be, but I'm so much happier this way. Like I really, really truly am. And so for me, it's getting to make the music I want, what I think is cool. And, um, I produce, my own music. Mostly I, I collaborate with engineers that I find that I really enjoy. And, um, I surround myself with people that, that I want to surround myself with. And I think that to me is success, um, as a, as an artist or as an entrepreneur, putting yourself in a position where you work with everyday people that you like. 
and people that respect you and the people that treat you well. And I would have never known that when I was 18 years old, that that was part of success, something to consider. But now that's a huge part of something to consider the people that I surround myself with. And so for me, it's making albums, making music that I want. You know, I'm currently making a Blink-182 tribute album for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and I'm loving it. Like, I just do whatever I want to do, and I don't really care what anybody thinks of me. And that, like, really suits me. It's great. It's good. Well, you've got all the talent in the world. So, I mean, I think if you're just, you know, out there creating, I I think that's a it's a beautiful thing. Are there other artists out there that you emulate or are doing something in the in the more independent space and you love what they're doing and they're a model for you? Or are you really just pioneering your own path here? Um, well, I'll see people do stuff and I'll pick up things here and there. I mean, that's just smart, you know, <laughs> but, you know, even even performing wise, I remember um, all that touring I did early on when, when I would perform early on, like I would just stand there and like I would sing the songs and like I couldn't move and like I would just sing, stand there and you know, going and witnessing all these people that I would tour with or people at festivals and you see what they do. And then you try something and you take a, take a step outside your comfort zone and you try something else and you try something else. That's how, you know, you develop your stage presence in your show is by picking up things from other people. And so, yes, I pick up lots of things from other people, um, but it doesn't even have to be artists. Like I'll look at um, some trainers, like fitness trainers that I follow and, and see what they're doing. And like, oh, that's really cool. Like, what is that? Or I saw the texting number thing um that uh my old manager who i who i still stay in contact with um from hellmouth you know he was talking to me about the texting number that jack harlow uses he manages jack harlow and i thought what an amazing thing you know because nobody looks at emails anymore and i can actually text with fans and so you know like i pick up things here and there how do you Um, what is the texting number so sorry i don't you can text me at 1-502-878-7460. And it's a really cool service. It's an app for me, um, but it's actually a text for you. And I can actually text you back and I text everybody back. Or I can, or if I like coming to your town, I can send a text message based on a location of a radius. So like I, within 50 miles of Nashville, I can send everybody a text. Or if Anybody of the age of 20 to 30, I can send a text Um, so I can pinpoint people based on some demographics um, or I can send just a mass text if I have a discount code for my website or whatever or a new song that came out. I can text it to them or a new video that comes out. I can text the video so that people don't miss stuff because that social media is all good and grand and everything, but everybody's on it and there's so much shit on there that people miss stuff. Um, And that's been a huge frustration for me. My two biggest frustrations since I left the band is one, I can't get in touch with my Hellmouth fans. I can't find them. You know what I mean? Like what they discover me every day. Like I get messages every day of like, oh, hey, I didn't know you were doing stuff, you know, and that's so frustrating. Yeah. Um, But and the other thing is I'll do all this work. I'll promote a show. I'll have a show somewhere. And we so much goes into that just to put on a show. And then the next day someone will be like, when are you coming in town? I was like, I was there last night. (laughs) This is so frustrating. So those are my two biggest frustrations. And the text thing helps, but now it's getting people to text me. So. And do you go through all of that yourself? Yeah, I do all of that. On the text, when the texts come in that you're sorting through. Yeah. Yeah. So I currently have 1,100 text friends, but people quickly find out that we don't have that much to talk about. Um, (laughs) And, um, and if somebody texts me too much, I kind of just stop, but yeah. And I tell everybody, I get a notification when it's their birthday. So I get to tell them happy birthday. Um, like it's just an app for me and I, and I actually am on top of it. Now, if I had 10,000 people, it might get harder to stay on top of, but right now I can, I can manage it. The tools are so great. I feel like every, I always feel old because I'm like, what? You can do this. You can do that. But I think it's so exciting. It's the, it's great. There's so much to do. I mean, there's so much to do. If, if you're bored, like, I don't know what to tell you anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's not. That's not a possibility. It's not a possibility. We'll be right back.
Um, before we came on, uh, Pat had noticed that on your Instagram feed that you are doing, what do you call them, house tours or playing in people's houses. Tell me about that. Well, I did it. I did it when I first left the band. It was, um, I did a, a solo acoustic thing and I would just play and show up in people's houses so and, good. um, you know, they would sell tickets and yada, yada. It was actually, I'm actually finding, so there was another band I was speaking to and I don't want to tell names without people's permission, but another band that I was speaking to recently over the pandemic, when everything was, you know, sort of, there's rules on everything and, and what, you know, the, the people couldn't work. They flourished by doing house shows. Um, you know, if people want them to come, they, they showed up and they do these house shows. And I just did a tour and this is really sad. Like I did a tour and the private shows that I did paid for the tour, the club shows where I would show up and 150 or so people would show up. I mean, I kid you not, a club wrote me a check for $300 when 150 people showed up because of the deal and what they said their expenses were and all this bullshit. And um, I kind of just don't really want to do club shows anymore <laughs> um, because it's just like I, it's a bad business decision. But you kind of have to do them just to like stay relevant. Like that is part of it, but um, I'm not sure. So yeah, house shows are kind of where it's at because as much as I love this, like it's not a charity for me. It's my job. Right. Yeah. I mean, you seem to have such a sophisticated use of the platforms and the technologies that are available to you. It's really inspiring. It's terrific. I'm amazed that you're able to juggle it on your own because it does consume a lot of energy and, and time. I did notice somewhere that you are, are you in LA now or have you, did you move back during the? Um, so I was in LA and then I was in between places to live in 2020 um, and I was traveling, I was touring and then everything shut down and I was close to home to Kentucky. So I said, okay, well, I'll just go back and stay with my mom for a month until COVID is over. And then... <laughs> Uh, five months later, I was still here in Lexington, Kentucky. And, um, you know, I met a guy. And so I was like, you know what, this is nice. Like, I don't really want to be in a really big city right now with all of this going on. Like that sounds stressful. And so I've been living here in Lexington ever since. And I am going back to LA, uh, to take a course, an acting course in January, but no, right now Kentucky is home again. Did you have any pandemic revelations or did your art change during that period? Well, I wrote an album. I did. I wrote uh, the my newest release, which is called Little Heart. And um, congrats. Thank you. I, I'm really proud of it. It's very it's by far the most sort of positive piece of work I've ever put together. And Astronaut was particularly a fun song for me um, because I wrote it in my mom's basement when I was staying with her and I was surrounded by all my niece's things. And I just felt like this like kid again, you know, I'm having breakfast with my mom every morning and watching Pride and Prejudice every night. And like, it's pretty good. <laughs> and, um, and we were sewing masks together. She taught me how to sew. And so I learned that and I sew, we sewed like five or 600 masks and sent them off when there was that big shortage. So I was writing this song astronaut and, um, is so much about, about reconnecting with that inner child, that person that you, you are in your soul, you know, before the world screws you up. And I find that the older I get, the more I just, i strive to reconnect with that younger version of myself, you know, that was good and hopeful and a dreamer and knew that anything is possible. If you want it, you can have it. And I really, uh, I just keep going back to that person. So I wrote a song about it. It's called astronaut. And then I got to make a music video here in Kentucky with my niece, which is adorable. And she's just wants to be a little actor now. And um, so it was really, really fun. In the music video, did you have a production team come? How did that come together? I, I do it everything, girl. I do everything. You're behind the camera. You're in front of the camera. <laughs> behind the camera but I do um I'm sure you hear this a lot of you know I know what my strengths are and people where my weaknesses are I just find the best and so I uh, and surround myself with the people that are good at those things and so there's this kid now I say kid that's not very nice he's a, this man named Austin Cooper and he's from here in Kentucky and he is so talented um and so he he shot the video and then him and I kind of directed it together and then I just had uh, my hair and makeup girl that I've used for a long time here do it and that was it and then him and I sort of storyboarded it together and uh, in two days we had a music video that's so fun it was so fun it was so fun and then you put it up on social is that how you get it out there in the world 
Yeah, I mean, there's a people don't do premieres as much online. Used to kind of always be like, you got to have a blog premiere, or you got, and they don't do that quite as much. Um, but you can, you know, upload on Facebook, and you know, you have to pay for anything on Facebook anymore. You got to boost the post, or else people won't see it. So you know, we did a bit of that, and um, I, I don't know if it got it got a few write ups. There's some places you can you can go online and submit for write ups, and that helps you know kind of keep the momentum going. And so just sort of promoted it like that. So what creative projects do you have coming down the pike for 2022? Well, um, I, I, I am doing this Blink-182 tribute album. And so I'm in the process of recording that right now. And that's totally fan funded. And it's um, for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And so I don't plan on taking any streaming money or any merch money from that project. Um, it's all just going to go to the LLS. And that's because I posted a video of Adam's song on acoustic guitar on Instagram and Mark Hoppus who has or had or is in remission. Um, he had lymphoma. And so he reposted it. And I thought, I think there's really something here. You know, this is, this is an idea. And so I'm so excited about it. And it's so funny because People are really polarized about Blink-182. Like people either <laughs> hate Blink-182 or they're like, I listened to it every day when I was 15. So the people that hate it are kind of like, I'll play them the songs that I'm recording. They're like, this is kind of good. I kind of like this. And so they have to, they have to admit that Blink-182 has good songs. And that's really funny to me. Or maybe you're making Blink-182 <laughs> have good songs. No, the thing is, is that they are well-written well-structured songs. I promise you. And they're really good. So when, um, does this, when does this come out? I don't know. Um, so I, I, I do uh, plan on leaving the fundraiser up, but it'll be sometime early next year. I'm sure that when that comes out and then I'm sort of not in a writing my own music phase right this second. I'm just not really ready to say anything. And I think that that's an important to realize. I don't want to, I don't want to jump the gun there, but I have all these other interests that I'm able to pursue. And so acting is something that I've been wanting to do. And I actually, this is goofy. So over the course of 2020, I took two online courses through the New York Film Academy. I took an acting course and I took a screenwriting course. In the acting course, I uh, met a director. His name is Shashank Katon. He's a, uh, a Bollywood uh, director and he's really quite successful. And you can, you can look him up. And he, um, he does rom-coms. And so he was taking the acting course because he had the time and he had, he was thinking about one day, you know, he wants to break into Hollywood. And so he wanted to like, just kind of audit this class. And so him and I became good buddies uh, in this online class. And I had pitched him a rom-com idea. And he said, well, I think you should just write that because he had seen me. I had written some comedy scripts and stuff for the course. And I said, okay. And so I took the class and and then long story short, he has now, Dharma Productions has now commissioned me to write some stuff for them, which is crazy and bizarre. Like I'm writing stuff for a Bollywood director. And so, so um, but, but, but his, his suggestion for, as far as acting was like the next step would be to just do something in person because it's very different. And so that hasn't really been available. And so I finally am like, okay, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. So um, I decided to kind of bite the bullet and say, I'm just going to take four, four to eight weeks and, and take this acting course and see what happens. I love it. I love that you really dive in. You know, you don't just dabble or say you're going to do something. You're really in there. It's it's so inspiring. Well, thank you. No, and, I, and not I, just acting, you're screenwriting. Yeah, I really enjoy it. I, the thing is, is like I said, like I'm never bored. Like I, I have so many things that I want to do all the time and it, it really becomes a problem. Like at a certain point, you got to narrow it down, I think. But right now I'm just, I'm so curious. And I think a lot of that might have to do with sobriety and like having confidence that I've just never had because of the sobriety. And I just feel like this sort of child again of like, anything's possible. Like give it all to me, like let's do it all. Um, there's just not enough hours in the day. That's my problem. Tupin's freedom means she can take on whatever projects inspire her, like recording an album of Blink-182 covers to raise money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Foundation. Entirely fan-funded, the album drops this winter. She's also branching out into acting and screenwriting, because why not? And you can follow Tupin on Instagram at Katie Tupin or hear her new podcast, Tupin Talks, on Facebook and YouTube. Or even better, text her at 502 878 7460 because she'll text you right back. Yep, there's an app for that too. Here's Katie singing All That's Left. 
Never 9 to 5 is a production of The Solo Project, LLC. This episode was produced by Patrick Mitchell. I'm Nicole Dyer. For more information, visit thesoloproject.com and follow us on social media at The Solo Project. Don't comfort me Take a bedside knee Some too far Tom.